Hello uh, and welcome to this Latrobe Asia event, Indigenous Language Politics in Asia. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. Uh, I would like to start this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits and acknowledge their language, the Woi Wurang. I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous people uh, who may be joining us on this webinar today. So Latrobe Asia is very proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and our knowledge of the region in which we live. And we are particularly proud to support this event on Global Language Advocacy Day, uh, particularly given that Asia's linguistic diversity is currently under threat from a range of different challenges and language rights activists face discrimination, harassment and violence while advocating for their rights. Uh, so today we are considering the issue uh, of how Indigenous people and languages across Asia are responding to these threats to language diversity. Who decides which languages deserve attention and resources and how can awareness of Indigenous languages be raised and new political agendas promoted? I'm delighted that we are joined by a phenomenal expert panel today. Uh, first, I would like to introduce Dr. Prem Piak, Assistant Professor in Applied Linguistics at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. I would also like to introduce Dr. Madoka Hamine, Associate Professor in International Studies at Mio University, and Dr. Tuting Hernandez, Associate Professor in Linguistics at the University of Philippines. Now, I would also like to introduce Dr. Gerald Roach, our Senior Research Fellow in Politics, uh, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University and a Fellow here at La Trobe Asia. And he will be moderating the initial panel discussion. Uh, and there will be opportunity for audience Q&A in the last part of today's session. So please put forward your questions in the Q&A box throughout the event. Uh, and when we get to the Q&A session, I can pose them to our panel. Uh, but for now, I'd like to hand the microphone over to you, Gerald. Thanks so much, Beck. Um, just to get started, I would also like to uh, add my acknowledgement that I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country. Uh, I'd also like to add my acknowledgement of the Woiwurrung language, which, was, which is the language of this land. And I want to acknowledge uh, the ongoing struggle for the reclamation of the Woiwurrung language, which is taking place uh, here today. Um, I'm very happy to be speaking to everyone today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for everyone listening. Thank you for the guests who have come along uh, to have this chat. I'm looking forward to um, addressing these issues on Global Language Advocacy Day, the first ever worldwide event in support of language rights and language rights defenders. Uh, just to get things started, I'm going to put two questions uh, to all of the panel, ask them to respond to those questions one by one. Um, and the first question that I have for everyone is just to tell us uh, who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about the languages where you are. And we might start with Madoka and then go to Tuting and then Prem. Hello, everyone. My name is Madoka Hamine, and I am joining this session today from 
Okinawa, Japan. And my uh, area, the islands, <laughs> is called Ryukyu Islands, and they are um, about 600 islands in the south of Japan. And uh, we have Ryukyu languages, which are indigenous to these islands. And uh, for myself, I am heritage speaker and learner of two of these indigenous languages, which are Yayaman and Okinawan. And for my research, I have been working on language reclamation and revitalization of Yayaman and, and especially focusing on my village, my home village where my father is from. It's called Miyana village of Ishigaki Island. And today I am very happy to joining this session and talking with you, Gerard. Nice to join this session. Is, is that all? <laughs> yes, thank ask? you. That's fantastic, Madoka. <laughs> um, I'm, I'll pass the microphone now to Tuting for his introduction. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, hello everyone. I am Tutin Hernandez. I teach linguistics at the Department of Linguistics of the University of the Philippines. Currently, I am also the convener of the Katig Collective. It's an initiative that seeks to raise awareness about the current linguistic situation of the Philippines. Uh, it might take some time if I am to enumerate the languages spoken in the Philippines. So let me just say there are about 186 languages in the Philippines, 184 of which are living to have gone extinct. And of the living languages, 175 are, are indigenous. However, a fourth of these languages are classified as threatened, which means around 45 of these languages are what, you know, what we may call endangered languages. But I suspect that the number is bigger than 45. Um, we have yet to, this is based on the, the Ethnologue Summary Institute of Linguistics report, but we have yet to do an, you know, a field work across all these different uh, groups. Um, however, from my field work experiences around the country, I, it appears that all Filipinos are multilingual and the farther you are from the center, the more languages you speak or understand. Yeah, so that's the basic linguistic situation of, of my country. Thanks, Jared. Thanks so much, Tooting, for that introduction. And uh, Prem, you are lucky last. Look forward to your introduction. Sewaru, uh, Nogan, thank you, uh, Gerald and uh, Latro, for inviting uh, me to talk. Uh, with you on issues of indigenous languages. So my name is uh, Prem Fia. I call myself uh, an applied linguist uh, who is interested in language policy, indigenous languages, multilingualism, uh, language, social justice uh, connections. Uh, my mother tongue is um, indigenous uh, Yaksung, popularly known as Limbu as well in dominant literature. So, um, which is mostly spoken in uh, Eastern villages of uh, Nepal and also some parts of India, such as Sikkim, Darjeeling uh, area. So, 
Nepal has um, 123 languages, named languages, uh, as documented in census. And uh, the state categorizes 59 indigenous communities, um, but there are 10 census. So what is, uh, you know, what are the indigenous communities and what are not? And uh, these communities speak uh, more than 80 different languages. Um, and most of these languages are uh, threatened in a number of ways. So maybe that, that we should be discussing later. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Prem. Okay, so now we've heard a little bit from all of the speakers about where they're from, the languages there, and some of the um, situation that those languages are facing. The second question that I would like to ask everyone is about uh, this idea of indigeneity and indigenous languages. So uh, 2022 is the first year of the United Nations International Decade of Indigenous Languages. It's an entire period of 10 years which the United Nations has set aside to celebrate and help protect indigenous languages all around the world. Uh, however, the idea of what it means to be Indigenous uh, varies from place to place. Uh, there are different associated uh, politics, uh, identities, social and linguistic practices connected to Indigeneity in different places all around the world. Often in places like Australia, our discussions and ideas of Indigeneity are dominated by the experience of what we call the Kansas countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the US. Um, throughout Asia, there are very different experiences of indigeneity, very different politics of what it means to be indigenous. And so it will be interesting to see what happens all throughout Asia during the United Nations uh, decade of indigenous languages. So my second question for uh, all of you, and we might go in reverse order, starting with Prem, back to Tuting and then to Madoka, is just to ask where you're from in the communities uh, you work with, in the communities that you come from, how relevant is this idea of indigeneity? How is it conceived in relation to language? Is it contested in any way? And how do communities and people there connect up with uh, international Indigenous politics, like what is being put forward by the United Nations for the coming decade. So I'll go over to Prem next for an answer to that question. Thanks. Yeah, thank you uh, for this question. Um, in Nepal, the the concept of indigenous or indig indigenous people or indigenous communities is um, locally known as like. Adibasi Janajati. So it's like a popular term in, in local uh, language. So um, it translates as indigenous nationalities, actually. So um, the concept is important for both uh, the, the state and indigenous communities. For the state, uh, basically, the concept has been used for various policy making agenda such as affirmative actions, the census collection, uh, policy making, uh, mostly uh, state policy making. Um, 
and the state defines indigenous indigenous people as people with um you know a very kind of communities with very distinct mother tongue and traditional rituals and customs and very with a unique cultural identity distinct social structure and uh, the communities uh, who have uh, written or unwritten histories for indigenous communities they have very kind of slightly different uh, meanings uh, of indigenous what indigenous nationalities actually is they use it for mostly for political purpose and it is used as mostly collective identity to resist uh, against the oppressive history of the state mechanism that existed for long. And so for them, they define indigenous communities as communities that do not fall in the conventional fourfold burner of the Hindu burner system um, with a very distinct collective identity, mother tongue, religion, tradition, culture, civilization, and also uh, they highlight this notion of traditional egalitarian social structure, right? So regarding your question on the connections of indigenous people uh, with UN global networks. So in Nepal, the UN conventions and resolutions such as ILO 169, human rights provision and language rights are highly cited in, in language rights uh, movements and uh, uh, the discourses around mother tongue education. And the organizations such as UNESCO, UNICEF have been really influential in policymaking process and developing plans around indigenous language education and cultural revitalization. So I would say that um, uh, there is uh, uh, there is connections and and of people with this kind of global networks. Regarding the language of indigeneity in practice, I should say that um, it's not really much and and encouraged in 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 workplaces and in across different domains. So when we say indigeneity, I say it is a form of epistemology and sense of autonomy. Um, and, and freedom and place as well. But as the domains of language use, for example, uh, education, schools, universities, and other public spaces are mostly dominated by de facto national language, Nepali and English. So I would say that, you know, in terms of using languages for work or at, at workplaces, it's not really, really encouraging. So yeah, there is a kind of um, increasing awareness in terms of political activism, but in terms of practice, still there are gaps. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, thanks, Prem. It's interesting. We're already starting to get a sense of a fairly different picture around indigeneity and indigenous languages. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how that continues to evolve. Uh, Tuting, tell us a little bit about the situation in the Philippines and the concept of being indigenous and indigenous languages there. Yeah, I've been thinking about the concept of in, in indigenous and indigeneity the past few days. And the term indigenous in, in the Philippine context actually has several senses that can sometimes be contentious. It seems that in the Philippines, the meaning of the term is more 
contextual and relative to the position of the speaker. Um, unlike its usage in some countries in the global north, where it is clear that indigenous refers to the First Nations, as opposed to uh, the European colonizers or sectors. In the Philippines, the term is open to a multiplicity of, of meanings. Earlier, I used the term indigenous in indigenous languages, and the term refers to all languages that are genetically Austronesian, that are spoken, that are spoken in political Philippines. Languages that belong to the Indo-European or Sino-Tibetan language families that are spoken in the Philippines are therefore not considered indigenous. Now, this is in the context of, of indigenous languages. However, uh, the usage of the term within Philippine government often refers to communities that are, are in the margins and minoritized groups that are perceived as culturally different. So Tagalog, for example, while considered indigenous in the sense that it is a, a lo it is local and it has existed way before the coming of the European colonizers, is not considered indigenous within because it is one of the more dominant groups in, in the Philippines. Um, if we define indigenous as first populations, however, then only the different Aita groups would qualify as indigenous. There were existing pockets of Aita groups in the Philippines long before the coming of the Austronesian speaking peoples. And it seems that the, the languages spoken by these groups were the first to succumb to a linguistic leveling when they shifted to an Austronesian language. Now, in terms of, um, do people think they speak indigenous languages? Well, I think the more dominant conversation or dominant belief is that we speak dialects of a language. That there is one language, Tagalog or Filipino, depending on where one locates himself in the linguistic history of the Philippines. And the rest are, are dialects. This uh, devaluation of the linguistic status and the erasure of, of diversity, unfortunately, is still the dominant belief. And this is a result of, of the American colonization of the Philippines, when a nation unified in uniformity was what the colonizers and the new elite aspired for. In terms of, of language use, the language of the institutions is still mainly English and sometimes Filipino as an almost tokenistic gesture. For example, during the, the initial stages of the, of the pandemic, all the inter information coming from government were in English, which led us to form a group called Language Warriors Philippines to translate and organize translators on the ground to better communicate the medical information given by the health department. Um, it was translated in a language that is accessible to various communities, into different languages that is accessible to various communities. I believe we were able to translate materials into 70 languages during the initial part of the, of the pandemic. And finally, there's definitely connections between um, government and you know, international organizations and all of that. And 
governmental policies are heavily influenced by, by international groups. Uh, on participation in global networks like the UN, uh, the politics of being invited to sit at the table in international networks, I think some of you have experiences with that. Personally though, I think I would be more interested in forming solidarity groups with like-minded individuals from all over the world who acknowledge the diversity and uniqueness of various experiences and recognize the need to come together, the, you know, to identify similarities in situations, to identify patterns of oppression and to raise alternative political agenda to disrupt and hopefully change the status quo. Um, yeah, we have to go beyond you know, celebrations of diversity. Thanks. Thanks so much, Suting. I already feel like I have enough questions to fill up the rest of the time, but I'll pass the mic over to Madoka and I'd love to hear from you um, a, a little bit about these concepts of, of being indigenous and indigenous languages there in uh, Okinawa. Thanks. Thank you, Gerald, and Ting and Prem. It's very interesting for me to to talk, uh, listen to how these concepts are understood in different contexts in Asia. Um, I can only speak from my own personal experience that the term indigenous in Japan is very contested, especially in the Ryukyus. And I didn't know about this term indigenous until I started my graduate study. And in my um, university degree, I studied linguistic, social linguistics. And then my professor told me that, oh, okay, Madoka, you are from Okinawa. Ryukyuan languages, uh, you have Ryukyuan language. And then I was confused because until that time, I didn't know that Ryukyu are also considered as languages. I thought it's a dialect of Japanese, and that's what uh, a lot of Ryukyuan people believe, that these are the dialects of Japanese. And I think it's gradually changed, uh, changing now since the UNESCO, UNESCO's um, recognition of Ryukyuan languages as languages, endangered languages. And I see from um, my research and my ex personal experience that it's affecting a lot in the ground, like local level, that a lot of initi initiatives are taking some actions to protect Ryukyuan languages and also the local government are, um, is taking some actions now, yes. So it's very different from the Tutin and Prem's um, situation, I think. Yes. Thanks so much, Madoka. I'll just exploit my privilege as the, as the question asker to make a few comments in passing before I go on to the next round of questions. I'll pick up on two issues. And one is this idea of languages and dialects and referring to distinct and separate languages as dialects, as a mechanism of, of oppression and how widespread that is not only throughout Asia, but throughout the world. 
I've recently been trawling through the United Nations preparatory documents on the drafting of the Convention on Genocide, which are 2,000 pages of extremely boring uh, meetings of United Nations meetings from 1946 to 1948. And I've been tracing through that the way that language, which was originally an integral aspect of genocide was, was removed uh, from that convention. And during the debates, one of the points that was raised was that this idea of dialectization, of referring to distinct languages as dialects, was, was an integral mechanism that states use to oppress languages and deny people of their language rights. And if history had turned out different, we might have ended up with these, this practice of dialectization being an aspect of genocide, but things took a very different turn and we no longer think about language oppression and dialectization as part of genocide anymore. Um, also, just further on the topic of the United Nations and their definition of indigeneity and the way that it works out differently in different parts of the world, one interesting aspect of the debate which happened during the United Nations decolonization process was a struggle to define uh, to, to define colonization and, and therefore who decolonization applied to. And one of the principles that was inserted into the definition of uh, decolonization at the last minute was what is sometimes known as the blue water principle which is simply that if someone doesn't get in a boat to a body of water to colonize someone else, then it doesn't count as colonization. And therefore the people in those territories are, were, not, were no longer uh, eligible for decolonization. And we see this, we see the effects of this today, for example, in Russia and its relationship to the sub-Siberian Far East, in China and its relationship to uh, Xinjiang, Tibet, uh, we see this in India and its relation to the Northeast and so on, that because these are land-based states, they were not eligible for decolonization. And that also influences who can and can't be and who is thought of and who doesn't think of themselves as Indigenous. So just moving on to the next round of uh, questions, I'm going to ask each of um, our presenters one question to answer in a little bit more detail. I'm going to throw the first question to Tuting. And the question that I want to ask on this is that if you can just tell us a little bit about some of the work that people in the Philippines that you yourself are doing uh, in order to support Indigenous languages, to spread awareness about these issues and to secure language rights. You've already mentioned some of the work, uh, for example, of um, Language Warriors Philippines and the translation of COVID materials. And if you could expand on, on that and some of the other projects that are happening there a little bit, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, one of the projects I'm working right now is establishing a group called the Cating Collective. It's um, it's an online, uh, we're, we're, we're coming up with a website that documents all of these things. And one of the things that we've documented, you know, are doing our news watch or news screen is that there are a lot of um, developed aggression happening, you know, in, in different, uh, in, in the countrysides. So, and these are just the reported ones. So it's quite interesting to, to see the, 
you know, how wide and how deep the, pr the problem is. Um, more and more people are, you know, talking about language endangerment lately, and that is good. There are a lot of efforts um, going into documentation, and um, we are now having a more or less constant conversation about this. However, the popular narrative is still the idea of one language versus another. We are still looking at this as a primarily a linguist, a language problem, a language overwhelmed by, by another. But I think we have to, to shift the conversation and look at the deeper reasons why this is happening. The shift to another language is just a result of, of a system that promotes inequality and social injustice that continues to interfere with the ways of life of, and rights of many ethnolinguistic groups in the Philippines, including the liberty to use uh, one's language. Now, if we acknowledge this, then we will also acknowledge that uh, language documentation by itself is palliative and it will only result to archival artifacts for future linguists or future generations to, to see and wonder about. Uh, while language documentation is a very important um, endeavor, and it cannot be, but it can't be the end. And it cannot solely be the foundation of language revitalization. We need to reframe uh, language documentation and efforts in revitalization within a wider social justice framework that recognizes the interconnected nature of social categories, recognizes um, intersectionalities and layered patterns of oppression. And my group, although most of my cohorts are, you know, they, they don't want to be named, you know, they want to be anonymous. We're working towards, towards these efforts of, of, you know, um, having a dialogue with the Commission on Human Rights and all of that. Um, I have noticed that people are more comfortable talking about language endangerment when we talk about it in a very academic manner, very less comfortable once the discussion turns political. When, when development aggression is brought up or when militarization and neoliberal policies are pointed out as causes of the situation we are in, when you point out that the language is fine, it's the speakers that are oppressed. In my experience, that's when they stop inviting you to dinner. However, we simply should not be content with, you know, um, descriptions of linguistic structure or wonder about, you know, or the wonder of the fascinating worlds of, of, of semantics. We have to go beyond linguistics and actually stand with the speakers of endangered languages. Because it's really not just about the endangerment of the language, but the oppression of the speakers of the language. I always remind myself, um, what good is language when the speakers are already dead? Um, and linguists of the post-colony can no longer afford to sit on the fence and hide, hide behind uh, the colonial bias of, of, of scientific objectivity. This is a challenge to us. Otherwise, you know, we might find ourselves not only academic, but also moot. Researchers and activists in the Philippines are also endangered or threatened. 
when you question policies, be it in the confines of academic spaces or in the streets, you run the risk of being tagged enemy of the state. Just a couple of days ago, a medical doctor working with human rights organizations in the countryside was arrested. One of our students conducting fieldwork pre-pandemic to document an endangered language was detained by military personnel. Uh, leaders of indigenous people's organizations are gunned down. And so, so yes, the challenge, you know, go beyond academic. It, it goes beyond organizing. It goes beyond political lobbying. The challenges are also you know, to life and limb. So it's, it, it, it's scary times, but you know, these are things that we, we have to do. So I, do not, I cannot blame my cohorts for, for wanting to be anonymous. You know, because it's, it's, you know, there's, there's threat always to life and liberty. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Tooting, for, for bringing home that point so clearly. I think this is one of the things that the Global Language Advocacy Day, that's part of the context for and the inspiration for this is that in so many uh, places around the world, language activists, language advocates, and even scholars face uh, real uh, threats every time they raise their voices, every time they uh, go on social media, every time they... Uh, step outside their door. And so I think um, it's really the place of uh, people in positions of privilege and comfort uh, wherever they can to raise their voices. And it comes back to that issue that you that you brought up earlier of of solidarity because it's not it's it's not only people in power and privilege, but also language activists all around the world who can support each other, can help protect each other and help promote rights for one another as well. Um, but just, on, on a lighter note, you always have a standing invitation for dinner with me to talk about neoliberal policy, linguistic justice, and militarization. So if you if you if you run out of dinner invitations, just let me just let me know. Um, I'll put the next question over to Prem, and uh, I know from your work, from our previous conversations, uh, that there's a lot of work being done in Nepal to to support indigenous languages there in communities. And I'd like to ask sort of building off what Tuting was talking about, what the reception of that kind of work is in Nepal. So first of all, from, from the government, from the state, uh, how supportive or how oppositional they are, but also from society at large and also within the communities themselves. Is there a struggle within the communities to get support for this work. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Gerald. So just to build on what Tuting uh, has said, I, I, I agree with him that, you know, the, the, you know, the issue of indigenous languages is not just about language or languages, right? And, and the, our obsessions on just focusing on linguist centricism should be actually um, reviewed and we should really focus on talking about people, ideologies and uh, political spaces that indigenous communities have or don't have at this stage. So um, with that acknowledgement, so I would just, um, yeah, your question is how, what are the efforts uh, from the state and um, how 
the efforts of the communities are received um, from the from from states, right? So um, I think um, there are supports. Uh, I would say, uh, particularly after uh, 1990s, um, when we had uh, this uh, kind of multi-party democratic regime restore um, at the at the Mac macro level at the state level. So there are uh, ideological spaces for indigenous languages. For example, um, the constitutions after 1990s have recognized mother tongue education or language rights as fundamental rights of, of, uh, of the people, right? Um, and also uh, quite recently um, in 2015, the new constitution has actually established the language commission and in its constitution uh, in different provisions uh, actually um, multilingual policy the preservation promotion of mother tongues uh, indigenous languages are um, actually uh, given a space um, and also the discrimination based on language background and ethnic ethnicity and other backgrounds are, are actually uh, considered as uh, as um, as crime, for example, right? So no discriminations against uh, any 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 people, you know, based on their language backgrounds. So I would say that at at the state level, there are ideological spaces. These rights are there in in constitution. In, in, in even education policies, for example. I focus on more on language. Uh, for example, education policies uh, keep focusing, at least, you know, at least in documents, right? In policy documents, right? Uh, keep, uh, keep including mother tongue education as the rights of, um, uh, you know, right to education, for example, as what, However, what is what is happening, and that is what I am really uh, kind of focusing on, is you know the gap. You know, in practice, what is happening? So, as Tuting said, mostly it's kind of tokenistic representation of indigenous languages. So there are sayings, there are discussions around indigenous languages. I focus on education, but um, in schools, in universities, particularly in in schools. Um, you know, the discourses are of indigenous languages are just like dismissed, they erase in many ways. And there are cases, um, there are cases uh, where the mother tongue education, in, in other words, like indigenous languages were given spaces, uh, let's say some uh, kind of 10 years before, but now they are gone. And, and there are often like uh, the, the citations of uh, very technical arguments of like not having, uh, not having teachers, not having resources, right? Not having money, but the issue is not really technical. The issue is mostly ideological and political commitment from the, uh, from the, the side of the state. So I would say that it's more, more, more like at, at the ideological and political level, the support actually exists in document. I would say like it's, it's a documental support, but not necessarily actually carrying on that uh, documental support in practice and showing commitment to the communities, right? And, and, and making tangible changes, right? 
So, and I would say it's not again technical, it's more ideological and it's, it's political. And there is very strong um, uh, deficit views, you know, coming from the discourses of the, of, the, of, of the people who are actually part of the policymaking processes. Deficit views against indigenous languages, seeing these indigenous languages in problem for learning, right? Learning, let's say second language or learning even academic content, for example. Um, and there are so many myths around indigenous languages a multilingual education. And most often, uh, communities are blamed, for example, right? Oh, these communities, indigenous communities are not aware of mother tongue education, or they are not really aware of the value of their own languages. So these kind of deficit views actually is very strong resistance against that, even the documental support as encoded in, um, coded or encoded in, in, in constitution and education policies. So I would say that it's kind of like both support at the, at the, at the document, at the level in, in document, but not really putting efforts towards uh, implementing these, uh, these, these documental uh, provisions in, in practice, particularly in education. So that, that is something uh, is really, really critical. Thanks, Gerard. Yeah, thanks, Prem. I, I think, unfortunately, this kind of combination is extremely widespread. Nice policies on paper, very little implementation, blaming technical limitations, and at the same time, victim blaming communities for not doing a good job protecting their languages and so on. Um, I'd like to end on a bit of a positive note, though, by uh, asking Madoka a question about the future. Uh, we are just starting the United Nations International Decade of Indigenous Languages. We have this whole 10 years to uh, focus on, think about and uh, work towards linguistic justice for Indigenous languages. And so could you tell us a little bit about what you would like to see happen? What are you, what are you planning? What are you dreaming of for the next 10 years for your communities and for your languages? Thanks. Thank you, Gerard, and uh, thank you for Tuting and Prem for the interesting discussion. And I agree with both of you that it's very, um, the language endangerment is not only about language. And the more I study, the more I am aware of, becoming aware of that. And in my, um, to answer to Gerard's question about the future of indigenous languages. I think because um, now, because of the international recognition, Rukyan languages are, there are more and more support in the ground level. Um, but I think that um, it's something that is related to what Tutin just said that, People like to talk about diversity and cultural plurality and, oh, it's interesting to listen to Ryukyu languages. It's, oh, it's exotic or something like that. They like to do that, but it's, uh, in, in my community, there are a lot of um, positive attitude in general from younger people to, toward Ryukyu, but, uh, it's not, um, 
it it I think that it's becoming uh, Ryukyuan languages are now seen as something to enjoy <laughs> and not to speak or use. <laughs> so that's the problem that we have in my community. People enjoy to listen, or maybe like people enjoy to to see a <laughs> comedy <laughs> about Ryukyu language, but not to use and speak. And I think that is something that I hope uh, to improve in the future that that is in uh, uh, language endangerment is about right of the people and the people uh, that speak and people from the community. And that is something that I hope to improve from uh, for the you and the decade of indigenous languages. Thank you, Gerard. Thanks, Madoka, and uh, thanks to everyone for sharing your thoughts in this uh, conversation. I'm going to hand it over to Beck to manage the Q&A in, in a second, but just before I go, I'll just mention that it's Global Language Advocacy Day. Uh, once the talk is over, the conversation around these issues will continue, so jump on Twitter, jump on Facebook. We are using the hashtag GLAD22. There are plenty of fantastic activists, scholars and advocates out there uh, doing excellent work. It was a real struggle to narrow it down to these three excellent people, but I'm so happy that we were all able to have this conversation. Uh, but yes, jump online, uh, get on social media, find other people doing similar excellent work wherever they are using that hashtag GLAD22, and I'll pass over to Beck now for the questions. Thank you. Thank you, Gerald, for an excellent job uh, moderating that discussion and contributing to that discussion. I mean, as, as somebody who uh, is not an expert in this area, I just thought it was an absolutely fascinating and rich discussion. And I learned a lot about, um, I guess, about the importance of language and think, and, and particularly the points that have been raised about how it's not just about language, it's about people and it's about um, their culture and it's about um, rights. And so uh, I would love to see some more questions in the Q&A box. It's been really delightful to see people um, putting in comments in the chat. There's a lot of engagement in this session, which I just think is terrific. And there's some resources that I see that have just been added into the chat as well. Um, if we can have some more questions, that would be great. But I want to kick us off and I'm going to ask um, the whole panel this, including you, Gerald, uh, but we meet on, on Global Language Advocacy Day and I wanted to ask about the nature of advocacy. And really, we've circled around this a little bit um, and, and, Gerald, you, you talked about the importance of, you know, um, raising the voice raising issues, but I wanted to ask the panelists, what would you like individuals to do uh, in terms of supporting language rights, in, in, in terms of um, supporting the, the advocacy campaign, what would you like individuals to do? And what would you like um, civil society organisations and or the international community to do better? Like, what is it that you see as being the biggest contribution that can be made in order to support language diversity and, and Indigenous language rights? So I might start um, tutoring. I might start with 
you and then I'll pass it around the panel. I, th I think it's important that we start with conversation, like real conversation. Um, and listen to the various experiences of different groups. Because while we see that there are parallelisms in, in, in terms of, of experiences, these experiences are very individual and very unique. And what, you know, listening to Freeman Madlocker earlier, the best thing about, about the, 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 the panel, I think, is that I was able to see a lot of you know, parallelisms and uniqueness in our experiences. And I think this, this is where we can forge solidarity. This can be the start of, of, of that. So I think for me, conversations are, are very important. Um, it's it's the, the only way we can um, go beyond what Prem said earlier of, you know, about documental support of lip service, of you know, political lip service and all of that. So, yeah, I think we have to start talking and sharing our experiences. Thank you, Tuting. Uh, Prem, I might uh, pass the microphone over to you. Oh, thank you. I think this is a really good question and very critical at this at this moment. I, for me, uh, I just would like to reiterate that so much work uh, has been done on document. I mean, there are significant work on documentation of languages, but it's more linguistic. I mean, it's just just like linguist job. But we need really, really, as Tuting said, uh, conversation with people from different different uh, field. It's, it's, it's more like interdisciplinary. It's not just linguistic, right? There is There are anthropologists, there are politicians, there are activists, and there are people, right? So it's, it's really important to see these, these efforts from a very different perspective, particularly people's perspective, right? That, that's very important. And we really need to decolonize our own efforts as well. So, um, so the, the first thing for me then is more like uh, community engagement, right? Putting community first, right? So we often tend to say that, oh, hi, uh, I would like to document your language. We would like to help you, you know, doing this and that. And we'd like to preserve, we, we help you preserve our languages. That is what I have been, I'm really disturbed with that, that kind of narrative because we don't really, if we say that like, okay, we preserve your language, we promote your language or we document your language or culture, I think that doesn't really work. So we are actually already putting our communities right as some kind of like language-less subjects or maybe more epistemic or agency-less subjects, right? So rather than doing that, as Tuting said, we need to start conversation first. It, it takes really long time for people to understand this issue of linguistic operation and cultural marginalization. It's very historical. So we need to really understand history first, you know, and and agency and voices of community. So for me, the first effort is how do we really uh, begin meaningful conversation and engagement with communities? Not really saying that, okay, we would like to preserve your language, we develop your dictionary, we develop, we document our languages. It should be more participatory and seeing from people's voice, right? And the second and most importantly for me is learning and educating or education part, right? So as long as, uh, if it's, I mean, if the younger generation do not really learn these languages in any form, right? Whether you call it course switching or translanguaging or, you know, just 
you know, in, 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 in a form of aesthetics, whatever. But in, in some ways, like younger generations should really pick up these languages, right? So for this, I think we need to really build on uh, our knowledge and resources that we have now, particularly community knowledge and resources and help these, uh, these younger generation understand, plus keep on you know learning languages in 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 any form so we need to be more creative not just like you know learning and all these like linguistic things so there are as madoka said uh, technology may offer some uh, uh kind of uh like uh some innovative ways for younger generation to pick up these languages uh more creative forms of learning languages not just like you know uh, coming together and starting alphabets and you know all these things these are important but what i'm saying is we need to find out more creative ways to put all these things together so we if we put language first my experience actually tells that if we put language first this younger generation may not be really interested in really learning that language but if we put knowledge you know uh, culture or place even you know their sense of uh, their own knowledge what do they know about their place their language their culture and you know these things would come really together and maybe they they are into uh, continuing uh, learning languages so that's that's what I, I I think so and 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 most uh, you know the last thing that I would like to highlight is we need to really uh, you know, uh, you know, the correct kind of deficit views that we have against indigenous languages. And I, I'm not saying that this is this is uh, this is uh, simply a kind of one shot right uh, thing, but it's more like a historical and dialogic thing. So we can't really help people, uh, you know, take their deficit views against indigenous languages away just having you know one sort of conversation it's really important to engage these people in dialogues as well so for me you know what i'm basically saying is we need to really review what we have been doing up to now and we need to really find out very creative uh, very uh, engaging and uh, epistemically you know just ways of doing work with indigenous communities Thank you, Prem. And uh, Madoka, I might hand the question over to you. Thank you. I completely agree with what Tutti and Prem said earlier. And it's um, I have been thinking about this concept of compassionate listening practice. And I think that is very, very important when you work with the communities members for example, if you come to the community as a researcher, you should um, start from listening, not <laughs> telling them, oh, your language is endangered and something like that. No, just come and listen to the people first. I think that is something that is very important. And another thing what to add to what Prem said earlier is that it's not on, uh, I also think that language work should be also connected with something from the indigenous community epistemology and maybe using art or music or something that is from the community is very important. I think that is what I think. Yes, thank you. 
No, thank you for those contributions. And Gerald, uh, what are your thoughts? What, what can we do to support Advocacy Day? Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief and just I want to offer two pieces of contradictory information, uh, contradictory advice, building on what others have said, which is that we should be we should be good listeners and we should be loud talkers at the same time. So on the first point, I, I think it's really important to, to find the right people to listen to about these issues. The right people to listen to are not necessarily people with... Uh, academic qualifications or disciplinary qualifications or a list of publications a mile long. The people to listen to about these issues are people with uh, lived experience of those issues, uh, hands-on experience, who, who whose life is embedded in, in these issues in some way or another. And not just finding these people, but learning how to listen to them, to listen carefully and attentively to to what we're being told. It's a skill that everyone needs to cultivate, but particularly when we exist in a political context that don't necessarily favour that kind of uh, compassionate listening that Madoka uh, mentioned. And then the second point about, about speaking up is that I, we need to be good listeners, but we also need to speak up um, loudly and boldly and we need to affirm the importance of language rights and there's so many reasons why we need to do that I think language rights are important I think that they are effective in protecting um, people's broader human rights I think that they are effective in achieving social justice uh, but there are there are so few organizations so few uh, places where language rights are, are affirmed. Um, so within academia, for example, there's a broad critique of language rights. There's little support for and promotion of language rights across disciplines in academia, uh, in human rights organizations around the world. Language rights are typically put in the too hard basket because they don't have the same sense of um, simplistic structures of blaming and shaming and redress that are attached to other uh, human rights violations. So even the organizations that are the biggest and most vocal in speaking out about human rights violations globally tend not to touch the issue of uh, language rights. So it's really, it's up to us to do that, to raise our voices, uh, to work together, uh, to affirm that language rights are important and that they need to be defended. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Gerald. I think the fact that um, advocates of language rights face, you know, dangers and threats demonstrates that this is an issue that provokes a lot of intense, um, I guess, attitudes or responses, and that demonstrates just how political the issue of language rights is and how linked it is to power and control. Uh, and the next two questions in our Q&A box are really about attitudes. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll combine two questions and our panellists can uh, respond to the two questions as they see fit. But the first one is, uh, what if people of the endangered languages are happy with the dominant language? So I think that really gets to digging into the complexity of people's attitudes when it comes to, to language rights. Um, and the, the anonymous poster goes on to say, I think cases in Nepal, Philippines and Okinawa are all different uh, in terms of um, language shift and 
and attitude. So that's the first one. And the second one um, is from Wale in Nigeria, who says that some uh, parents do not allow their children to learn Indigenous languages and culture. One of their claims is the language does not have any potential to make their children great because the great people they know speak English and English is not a local language. Some even believe that their native language gets in the way of children learning English. How can such people be convinced to change their mindset? And I think that's a really important question because we're really getting down um, to to the issue of the complexity of how people, um, I guess, um, relate to issues of, of language, particularly when you have dominant and uh, less dominant languages. So I might um, sort of go in reverse. Sort of, Madoka, I might ask you to uh, address those two questions first, uh, if you'd like. Yes. Mm, this is a very difficult question. I think, like, uh, the what if the people of the endangered languages are happy with the dominant language? And yes, this is very um, difficult. I think if, of course, we, in the case of Okinawa, we, um, for example, we, we learn Japanese as the national language and, and then, English is the the compass like we learn English as a compulsory subject in school, and a lot of community members have told me that oh why are you doing this work with the indigenous Okinawan or Yayama? You already speak Japanese and uh, English, and that is enough. <laughs> why don't you teach English instead? <laughs> and that is something that. Um, that is difficult for me. But uh, in my experience, for example, even with my own family, when I started learning uh, speaking and uh, speaking in my indigenous language of Yayama, one at first for my grandparents, grandmother particularly, it was really hard for her to listen to me speaking in Yayama. But, uh, um, one day she switched to um, Yayaman all of the sudden and she started crying. <laughs> and um, I don't know, I think it depends on the standing point and viewpoints if the people of the community are really happy about the dominant language. I think that is reflection of the history and colonialism and the, um, the way that they are um, taught to, to see things. So I think it's a multi-layered um, aspects and things to consider when we say something like this. <laughs> So it's it's a difficult question. I hope I answered this question. 
No, that was a really interesting mm. answer, particularly around the complexity of how attitudes are formed, because it seems to me, and, and not being an expert on the panel, but it seems to me that this idea of English as being the global business language might reflect kind of dominant neoliberalism in, in, uh, in some areas, and that idea... Uh, that to head you need to, to understand English um, reflects the kind of ideology there. So uh, that's a terrific answer there, Madoka. And uh, Tooting, I might bring you into the conversation here. I think this is where we need to listen. Um, where is this rooted? Um, dominant languages become aspirational because local languages are not given the same importance. It is also a question of opportunities. The reason why people are happy with the dominant languages is because they see it as a way of, you know, as a way for, or as a tool for upward social mobility. But if we provide the same opportunities, you know, to other languages, do we think people will abandon their mother tongues? Also, does it always have to be one or the other? I think in the Philippines, in my experience, historically, we've, we have always been multilinguals. If you have access to more languages, wouldn't that be better? I can attend this panel and express myself in, in one language that I think is appropriate in this, in this arena and go to you know, my, my field sites and, and communicate in a language that is appropriate in, in, in that arena. So wouldn't that be better? Um, I think my analogy would be, um, why, would, why would you eat at a buffet with just a teaspoon or with just a piece of chopstick when you can use all the different you know, spoons and forks and, and everything there? So yeah, I think if given the opportunity and if given the, the support, people would always choose their first language. Thanks. Thank you. And Prem, I might bring you into the conversation. I think, I think this, this notion of happiness is actually, I, I, you know, it's very difficult to define as Madoka said, right? It's, I mean, you know, how do you define happiness? Right. So, and how does it actually? Uh, how does it? How is it related to language, right? Or languages, right? It's it's it's, it's very complicated question. But the first thing, as two things said, is I think the root of these kinds of uh, you know questions or um, these kinds of complexities actually come from. Not, not from communities, actually. In a way, we, we see, I mean, the way we ask questions to communities maybe may create very different perspective. For example, if I ask someone, as Tuting said, okay, do you like to be, uh, do you like your children to be taught in English or national languages or your mother tongue? So if we ask these, this kind of very either or kind of uh, very, uh, binary questions right then the responses we expect is already clear right so we expect that these communities are actually more happy i mean they are happy with you know status quo that is like uh, you know being taught uh, in in dominant languages but 
as Tuting said, it's, 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 it's not neutral, it's very political. But if we ask these communities very different question, for example, what happens if we offer programs in all these languages, right? And, and the purpose of, let's say the purpose of um, doing this is uh, not really losing their mother tongue, not really losing their first language, but learning second language at the same time. So the whole purpose is more inclusive and the purpose is to have, uh, to produce multilingual citizens or multilingual people rather than just ending up, you know, and being happy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quoting that being, being happy and learning just dominant languages and access more opportunities. So I think, I think, uh, I think it, it largely depends on how we question and how we raise questions with the community. So that's why it's really important to see ourselves, how are we asking questions to, to communities as well. That is what I see in, in applied linguistics research, for example, they quite often go to communities and they ask this kind of binary question to parents, indigenous communities, and they said, okay, the, the majority of parents, indigenous communities tell us that they just won to be taught in English or dominant languages is fine if they are not taught in their mother tongue, right? So, I mean, it, but it doesn't really help us, you know, it doesn't really help us uh, to, to, to have more um, inclusive multilingual policies. So that's why it's really important to ask, you know, uh, what, how, you know, we are doing things, you know, up, up to this stage. And also language shift is political. You know, language shift is not kind of like uh, the responsibility of indigenous communities. It's, it's not because indigenous com communities wanted to be shifted from their language to learning new languages. Of course, as, as someone who is speaking very different and non-dominant indigenous language, I would like to learn as many languages as possible. Yeah, so learning many languages as, you know, as resources um, is always good. But, you know, it doesn't mean that I have to forget everything that I was learning from my parents, my grandparents and my communities. And there are, there are many, uh, many things that I can learn from these languages. So how do we see? Do we see things as multilingual or do we see things from community perspective or do we think do we see things from more like our expert, you know, epistemological perspective? So that's 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 the thing that we need to really, uh, uh, you know, uh, discuss. Thank you, Beck. Thank you, Prem and uh, Gerald and I are zooming in from a country that's very comfortable with monolingualism. So this is a really, um, I think, important point to be made about um, the value in being able to to speak more than one, more than two languages. Uh, and I would like to, to ask Gerald uh, about his views on, on some of this discussion about attitudes. But there is also a question uh, from Luciano that is specifically for Gerald. So I will pose that to you as well. And that is, you asked the panellists how they saw the future of Indigenous languages in the next decade. I'd like to know what your opinion about this is coming from a South American country where interesting things are happening with Indigenous language awareness and living in New 
New Zealand, where Indigenous language is an official language, my opinion is we are going in the right direction. But I'd like to know if you share the same view when uh, your experience is related to Asian communities. So I might start with you, Gerald, but I might also come back to um, the rest of the panellists to ask them uh, if, if they think we are trending in the right direction. Yeah, thanks, Beck, and thanks, Luciana, for that um, question. So the the way that I think about this, you know, what is the direction of history in relation to Indigenous languages, so to speak, uh, the way that I think about it is that we're living in a moment of crisis. Um, so to explain what I mean by that, we have, there's this, this sort of the general definition of crisis, which is an emergency, something uh, acute and terrible and dangerous is happening and, and it's that's true in one sense when it comes to languages which we have languages all around the world uh, where speakers are shift being shifted towards speaking dominant languages there is at least half of the languages in the world but I suspect many more are in this predicament of uh, facing what I call language oppression so we, we're in a moment of crisis in that sense which is not good uh, but we're also in a moment of crisis in a second sense, which is the sense meant by uh, Antonio Gramsci, which is this sense of the old is dying and the, the new cannot be born. We're living in a moment of indeterminacy and uncertainty where the old regime is present and the future seems to be among us as well, but it's not clear how, how the, the actual future will resolve itself in, in terms of those two things. So to give some concrete examples, in Australia, we have this remarkable crisis in that sense where the politics of Indigenous languages are moving in both directions at, at once. We have ongoing um, language oppression with Indigenous languages becoming dormant. We have a series of national surveys of Indigenous languages which um, track the, the number of languages spoken, the context in which they use, the general health of languages and so on. And, and um, we've had three of those national services and each of them have uh, highlighted the worsening situation for Indigenous languages across the country uh, throughout those three surveys. But at the same time, we have this remarkable efflorescence of language reclamation work, increasing visibility of Indigenous languages in the landscape and in public discourses and in the media. Uh, we have some commenter, com commentators like Jacqueline Troy, who's a Ngarugu woman and a linguist at the University of Sydney, talking about a renaissance of Indigenous languages throughout Australia. And both of these things are true simultaneously. We have uh, language oppression, languages going dormant, injustice and oppression, reclamation, renaissance, social justice, increasing visibility, both of those things happening simultaneously. And I think any place you go to in the world today, uh, you can find both of those things happening. And I think that that's because in the world at large, the nature of the world system itself is in crisis. And that's the historical moment where we live in. It's no longer possible to talk about the constant march of progress, the expansion of human rights and, and so on. We have the rise of authoritarianism and popularism, the renewed threat of war. We're facing global climate crisis and so on. It, it's hard to be optimistic in the world like the one that we live in, but at the same time, there are so many pockets of, of 
resistance and creativity and all forms of solidarity and so on. Uh, and so in terms of the future of Indigenous languages, I don't think that we can really resolve anything in either direction. I think both, both futures, the good future and the bad future are equally likely. And that's another reason why I think like this is why it's important for everyone to get involved. This is why it's important for people to raise their voices together um, to support language activists, to support language advocates and, you know, try and contribute our own voice and our own efforts to resolving the future towards that, the good direction, you know, the future of linguistic justice, the future of reclaimed languages, uh, the future of multilingualism the, the, and so on. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. So I, just a point of clarification there, Gerald, I'll stick with you for a second because there is a question about the Australia example and that is do they teach... Uh, Indigenous language to others. And I believe that there is uh, an Indigenous language education policy. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, we have a, a national Indigenous language education framework as part of the curriculum, but the under the, you know, under the principle of self-determination for Indigenous communities, they are, the communities are able to decide whether they want their languages taught. Uh, to general publics or not. So it, it differs on a community by community basis. This is also um, a, an ongoing area that, of development where different communities are developing different protocols around these uh, things. Um, so yes, it's, it's the, the approaches to this issue are as numerous and diverse as the Indigenous communities across the country. Now we have enough time for a, a final comment um, from each of our, our panellists and we do have one more question in the Q&A box that I would like to address and that's around um, endangered uh, language issues uh, being connected with politics uh, and uh, what happens when people don't see it that way? Shall we tell them that their minds are colonised? So that's a, a really, I think, provocative question to end on. But I also wanted to come back to thinking about um, the future and, and, and that question that I posed before about whether or not you think that thing that, that the issue is trending in the right direction. Um, so Prem, I might start with you for some final thoughts. So I think that it, the question, so maybe I would start off with a question. So <laughs> I think that it's a very tough question. So um, languages, uh, endangered languages are language safe or any language issues are political issues. And if people don't see it that way, then are they uh, are their minds colonized, right? That's that's the that's the question. I, I you know I don't I don't know how to answer it, but basically I think uh, that's why we need to really discuss, you know, these are not really uh, language issues and political issues are not really uh, separable. So if we really that's why I, I'm really focusing on, if we just focus on language as kind of isolated entity, right? I think uh, we, we really move forward. So I think that's what I, I, I would like to highlight rather than saying whether they are colonized or decolonized or whatever. So yeah, uh, I think we need to really highlight that. So regarding the, the future or that, that's your question, Beck, right? Uh, the future, I think, as I said, um, I you know I believe in community engagement. That's the that's the first uh, thing that we should be doing, 
um, and working with people from different uh, different backgrounds and trying to find out spaces how we can uh, spaces for making changes. Uh, sometimes what happens is like we 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 start from really uh, macro level like more kind of state level engagement. I think that's 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 one way of doing. But now what we what I see basically based on Nepal's experience is that we really need to start from communities now more, from more kind of taking bottom up perspective and uh, and focus on more. Uh, teaching part, uh, teaching not as like, you know, I would teach you and you should be learning, but teaching as more collaborative, uh, as more, um, uh, let's say, uh, more critical dialogic process um, as, as teaching or let's say educating, right? So there are different forms of, I, um, for me, I, I really see that, see the value in focusing on epistemologies, knowledge, indigenous knowledge is maybe as the beginning point of, you know, kind of uh, bringing more creativity in, in this, uh, in, in these efforts. Uh, for example, I have seen that like younger generations and even communities are really interested in talking about, for example, knowledges, for example, the cultural uh, knowledges, right? So knowledge they have, been uh, practicing, but not necessarily seeing value in it. And when, when we start talking about e the community knowledges and then language is actually embedded there, right? So actually this, this expands the, the spaces of utilizing uh, their own knowledge at the same time, expanding that in relation to uh, language reclamation or language maintenance. And gradually see the values in 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 the connection between these epistemologies and languages. So so for me, you know, as more applied linguists, so I would see that you know, and and the community uh, believes in community engagement. I would see that like it's really maybe important to focus on epistemologies and values these communities have. So and and they would see it as universal, not just you know uh, there in, in in the first side, but later as they become more critically aware, uh, and basically younger generation, they see it as how these values are important for uh, for them and for their community and larger community later. Thank you, uh, Madoka. Any final thoughts from you? I. I uh, wanted to, uh, I was thinking about this question about the, if the mind is, um, if the mind is, we can we say the mind, their mind is colonized? But uh, I think one of the things that I can do or we could do is to, to bring a conversation and like somebody did to me, <laughs> when I was doing a study, like, oh, you have the languages. <laughs> and then it made me reflect on my experience. And that is something that, that we can do for the future, I think, for the younger generations and the, to, the, to engage, with, uh, engage in the conversation with the people, I think. Yes. 
Thank you. It's good to take the conversation back to the importance of conversation because that has been a significant theme. Uh, and Tuting, any final thoughts from you? Everything is political. It is cliche, I know, but it is real more so in the global south. To us, every day is really political. It's right in your face. Um, but it is also unfair to, to jump into that conclusion as well of, you know, um, having labels that you're, you know, colonized and then decolonized and all of that. Um, we are all products of our history. So we, we, we have to look at the, the process and the, the experiences and not just be content with, with binaries of, you know, you are this and I am that. Are we trending in the right direction? Well, the fact that we are talking about it is a good start. I remember when a mentor started talking about language endangerment in the early 90s, nobody really took him seriously. But we should also expect a backlash, a pushback. So we have to be ready for that as well. Whenever we disrupt the status quo um, or bring discomfort to the dominant, a strong pushback is not far behind. Thanks. Yes. Uh... That, that's, I, I completely agree with you. Everything is political. Uh, and Gerald, uh, I just wondered if you had some final comments before I bring the session to a close. Yeah, thanks, Beck. I'll just extend on that point that Tuting was making. If, if we care about the future of languages and if we want a future that is more um, linguistically just than the one that we're living in now, uh, then that involves uh, disrupting the status quo to some extent. Any, any effort to disrupt the status quo um, comes with costs, it comes with retaliation. Some of us can afford to bear more of that than others. Um, and we're all stronger together. We're all more capable of dealing that together. And it's up to us to protect each other in the struggle to make that future of uh, better linguistic justice. Uh, so that's it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, and I would like to extend my thanks to all of our panellists uh, who have joined us for this uh, very important session on this very important day uh, today. Uh, it was a really uh, rich discussion, as I said before, and uh, I have learned a great deal. So I really appreciate the time that you have given us today. And I also appreciate, Gerald, uh, the work that you've put in um, to, to put this panel together and this discussion together. It is really really significant um, and we're at the Trobe Asia really glad that we were able to do a small thing to support um, the Global Language Advocacy Day. Now our next scheduled La Trobe Asia webinar is on gendering the pandemic and it is on the 15th of March uh, and that is a slightly late celebration of International Women's Day uh, but we'll be talking about how to advance women's voice rep uh, representation and leadership uh, in society, in politics and in business. So please join us for that if that sounds like something that interests you and also please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Trove Asia publications. But once again, I'd like to thank our panellists and our extremely engaged audience uh, for joining us today. Thank you.